This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 35 of Literary Disco, A River Runs Through It. Today's episode in two parts. We'll begin with the bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to find a book at random from our bookshelves and defend our ownership of it. And then we will discuss the novella and the movie, A River Runs Through It. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Good evening, good sir. I'm, I slightly have a cold, so that's why I sound a little off. Um, I'm getting over it, though. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. That was that pause. <laughs> that was, that was well, Julia had a cold, too, and I didn't see you or I rush to to wish her well. Maybe you caught it through the internet. I think I did. I have a friend who got E. coli recently. Cool. But that's probably not what you guys want to hear about today on Literary Disco. I think that's why they listen, to hear about the weather and your friend's digestive problems. This friend of mine gets a series of diseases that are only like brought over on the Mayflower. I won't say this person's name because she's a big fan of the show and is my friend. But she has gotten, in the last couple of years, E. coli, pleurisy, rickets dropsy like anything that was brought over originally on the mayflower or was in jamestown she has somehow picked up in the last couple of years i have a friend like that too she got scarlet fever when we were in college it was so oh, weird that's crazy so we're gonna play some bookshelf roulette is that right julia it is right and i have numbers what are those numbers okay. should you explain as ever how this game works okay. for the listening audience so how this game works is we have we get three numbers First, I log into our Twitter account. Then... (laughs) (laughs) Add two tablespoons of sugar. (laughs) Then, um, all right, so the first number is a number from one to four, and that's the corner of the bookshelf we're starting on, okay? Okay. And that's corner two. So that's the upper right-hand corner, guys. Upper right-hand corner, got it. Then we are going to count shelves. Uh, So we're going to count down from that upper right-hand corner. This time, it's two. Another two. Okay. Everybody, so second shelf from the top. And then we're going to okay. count over from right to left 12 books. Okay? All right. And whatever Very well. book you find, that's what we're going to talk about. Finally, we've gotten to my classics bookshelf. Thanks, everybody. Please give that exact same number. Um, <laughs> combo every it's time. It's a 2 2. It's a 2 2 combo. It's the 2 2. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, this is very appropriate, and I'll go first. I okay. landed on, for real, Wuthering Heights. Oh, yes. my. Look at that. Um, so um, I've read Wuthering Heights at my leisure. Um, I didn't have to read it for school or anything. I'm sure a ton of our listeners have loved it um, or read it and hated it. Have you guys read Wuthering Heights? A thousand years ago. I've never read it, no. You love it, right? You know, I love it, but I love Jane Eyre. A lot more, mostly because I've read Jane Eyre four times. I've read Wuthering Heights wow. once, so I haven't. It doesn't. You kind of stick. love that whole like Victorian novel. Goodness. I've never been able to get into those kinds of books for some reason. Like, I mean, yeah, even, even like Jane Austen, I 
recently rediscovered and realized like I actually really like, but mm-hmm. I used to hate her when I was in college. There's a big Austin versus Bronte divide. So I right. have never really loved Jane Austen actually. I mean, I like Emma. Really? Um uh, but Jane Austen's novels are much more social, and the Brontes... Do you think she's too proud or too prejudiced? <laughs> um, I think she has... She has some sense. Too much... Ah, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Brontes are... Um, they're actually more, a lot more like um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or that style that I really like. They all take place on moors and... People yeah, that's a, I die can't of stand horrible that. things. That's exactly um, why I never got into it. It's like yeah. that weird, like I don't know. I, it's just it's it's a maze to me. Like it's a maze of language and character that I've never quite it's, just gotten. It's a thicket. And then there's a whole issue of manners that comes along. Yeah, it's in too it proper. Too. That's what it yeah. comes down to. It's just it's too. Uh, it feels inhuman to me. It feels removed. It, like it never gets into that like messy human. Stuff well, that that's I like. untrue. So you're that's conflating Austin. Jane Austen and the Bronte right. sisters. So Jane Austen I, right. is, that's what you're describing. Um, but the yes. Brontes get dark and very strange. And it's very difficult to talk about Jane Eyre without revealing the huge, 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 huge spoiler in the book, which is prop, a huge part of the reason why it's so popular. But that spoiler is really, really messed up and very human. And it, it requires Jane to kind of rethink. It's it's a twist on the classic Victorian novel. Is that one of the characters right. has been hiding this secret that just completely blows apart the idea that a young governess can you know move into a manor and fall in love and everything will work out perfectly. That does not happen in um, Bronte novels and in in Wuthering Heights. It's it's the same thing. I mean, there's a burning torturous romance in the middle of it, um, but. Something happens. And a house that's shaped like a skull, you know? <laughs> I mean, isn't that the, the opening paragraph describes the house and it looks like basically a Let's dead look. face or something like that? Or are you confusing it with the fall of the House of Usher? <laughs> it's a very foreboding opening that describes the, the house in Wuthering Heights. No. <laughs> no? Right, here it is. 1801. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbor that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist heaven. And Mr. Heathcliff (laughs) and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow. He little imagined how my heart warmed toward him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows as I rode up, and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution, still further in his waistcoat as I announced my name. Mm, I'm Shut sorry. Up. Were you... Because I... I ha- oh, God, this is weird yeah, because I... the second I, I heard I the word sl- misanthropes. I, I fell asleep, so I, my body thought I was asleep, so this is weird. Oh, I hope you guys can see this, I hope. Wow. It's all that wordiness that the, the Victorian... Like, Edith Wharton... I don't like that much either. I, I need to. I mean, I should. I should invest the time it takes. But you like Poe, right? And Poe is obviously but they're short. very. They're short stories. The thing is, uh, you know, you have to sink into it. You have to, you know, it's like swimming. You have to get all the way into the mood. And when you hear what the, you know, what the words are really saying, you know, is that I was attracted to this man because he hated everything and was retreating into his waistcoat and is dark and brooding and horrible. You know, that is. It's an interesting thought. You just have to dig. You have to dig deep. It's not a book you can read lightly. 
Right. It's not like it's not like a middle sex so you can just sort of zip right through it. Yeah, I mean no. it's it's not like a, you know, Finnegan's Wake, which you would commit to reading a couple pages at a time. You, you know, it's not right. like that. It's not an easy yeah. book, writer. It's that not. You like. It's not as Graham. It's not as Graham Greene would call it entertainment. It's it's actual literature. So yeah, Wuthering Heights. That's what I landed on. I also landed on a classic. Ooh. Um, and it's a classic that has that this particular book has history. The actual physical copy. Ooh. I landed on Dickens' Great Expectations. I love that book. Me too. Absolutely love that book. One of my top five favorites of all time. This is from the Occidental College Library. You can actually see it <laughs> bound at the Occidental College <laughs> Library. I got charged four hundred dollars. <laughs> you did not. Because I checked this book out, lost it, got a bill. I couldn't believe that if you lose a library book, they charge you at the student library $400 for a book that I could get for a dollar at the thrift, you know, the, the right. Dover thrift edition. I could print it for, you know, 50 <laughs> cents or whatever. But the fact that I was billed for this fucking book. And then about uh, four years ago, an old friend from college stopped by a party at my parents' house and he handed this book to me. I oh left my it in God. his dorm room our first year in college and he had never thought like anything of it and then he realized oh this is Ryder had checked this copy out so he brought it to a party <laughs> and I got this book back and I was like you son of a bitch you cost me $400 because you didn't return this book to me you know when we were 17 uh, so yeah. wait, and neither wait, of us stayed wait, at Occidental either he transferred out after a year there? I must have left it in his room because I don't think he ever read it because uh, he said yeah I never read it um, so I must have left it in his room uh, or he never even or read something. it. No, he hadn't even read it all that time, and uh, I hadn't even finished it because I had, you know, gotten halfway through it or whatever. So I've never. I'm not a huge Dickens fan. We've talked about this before, Todd, because Todd's a huge fan of this book. I love uh, that book. I, I think it's one of the most remarkable pieces of literature ever written, I and agree. it's influenced so many other books. <laughs> There's no great Gatsby. Them. There's no great Gatsby without great expectations. Is my, is Did my you belief. guys know that Mark Twain's first date with his wife was to go see Charles Dickens do a reading? No. Uh, I thought he went and saw Val Kilmer as Charles Dickens. Perfect selection of Val Kilmer, by the way. No. Like, could, you don't could, know about this? No, what? Oh, God. Val Kilmer is the new Mark Twain because the dude who's playing Mark Twain eventually is going to die. Hal Holbrook, is that who plays Mark Twain? Yes, his name is Hal Holbrook, and he's incredible. Hal Holbrook has been... This is an <laughs> amazing look, fact. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can see the look on Ryder's face... Val right? Kilmer? Why Val Kilmer? Okay. That's the question the world Anybody. wants to know. Why Val Kilmer? Hal Holbrook is incredible. He's been he's actually literally been playing Mark Twain longer than Mark Twain played Mark Twain. He started so when good. he was in his 20s, and now he's in his 80s. Um and so he used to have to age up, and now he has to age down. It's it's amazing. Um, and he's very wow. talented, and it's his life's work, and he's a, a true Twain scholar. And then scholar. Val Kilmer wants to take that, that big money of playing Mark Twain for himself. <laughs> he, he, works in, <laughs> he works in Batman references. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No. no. Yes, he does. No. No. <laughs> what does he do? I don't understand. I'll send you a video. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, um, Val Kilmer's Dickens. It could work. I could see it. Uh, I can't see it. Um, well, in the similar vein, I too have pulled out a classic. Oh my God. This is like, for me, this is like pulling the triple cherry at a casino. Except my classic is a little bit different. My classic is a classic issue of the literary magazine Barrel House. 
um, <laughs> from 2009. Barrel House, um, our friends at Barrel House, we did a little uh, episode of their podcast when we were at AWP with book them. Book fight. Book, book fight. Um, so <laughs> this is an old uh, issue. This is issue seven from 2009. Um, I've never read it, uh, but <laughs> I own it. And there is Read us a some bunch story of really good, titles. There's some really good stuff in here. There's there's something I'm going to point out directly, but there's uh, there's a great story. I'm presuming it's great because it's a wonderful writer by Matt Bell called Beauty Forever. Um, there is a short story called The Truth About Ninjas by Alex Irvine. Um, there there's a bunch of poetry, and then there's also an illustrated story. So what they used to do, and I don't know if they still do it, is they would have an artist illustrate a story that had appeared on their website. And um, this issue, the story was called Bigfoot's Widow by a writer named Joni Tevis. Uh, and so it's, they've turned into a little graphic comic about Bigfoot's Widow. And I want to read that. Looks very amusing. Um, Barrel House, for those of you who don't know, um, it's a literary magazine out of um, Washington, D.C., um, or Bethesda, perhaps. Maybe that's what it is. But they've been around for a couple of years. Um, they used to always have a feature in every issue, an interview with someone where they'd ask them what their favorite Patrick Swayze movie was. And, it, and sometimes the people being interviewed would be like, why the fuck are you asking me that? But most of the time, they'd get a really strongly considered answer. Like, you know, <laughs> well, if it, if it has to be my favorite actual movie, it'd probably be Dirty Dancing. Yeah. But my favorite role that Patrick Swayze played, it would absolutely have to be, you know, Next of Kin or Roadhouse. Um and I, uh, I had a piece in Barrel House a couple years ago, uh, a short story called um, Walls that was in one of my books. And the, when they interviewed me, I had to really think about the question. And, you know, my feeling is that he was never better, Patrick Swayze, than when he was in Point Break as Bodhi. Mm. But, but for sheer entertainment value alone, I got to go Outsiders or Red Dawn. Was he in Outsiders? He was in Red Dawn for sure. I don't see how anything other than Dirty Dancing is the correct answer. Red Dawn is the correct what answer about because Ghost guys, we haven't talked about Ghost. No, no, Ghost, Ghost is horrible. Okay. I don't, I don't cotton to Ghost. I think the Ghost red shirt is great, but Dirty Dancing is, I mean, talk about a classic. Well, the problem with Ghost also is that I saw that movie on a date with a girl named Holly when I was in college, and then it. Long story short, I was dating her roommate, and she um, ended up pouring acid. On the hood of my Toyota Tercel, so I sort of have an atavastic. Yes, I sort of have an atavastic response <laughs> to the ghost because that's not a problem because... with ghosts. That's a problem with you, and a problem with Holly. Where does one find acid? <laughs> I don't know. And she was like, like, "How do you procure acid to pour?" I, I don't know what it was, but that she would was freak like, "Me out, man. That's like a violent." Movie. She wasn't um, like was I'm not like Facebook friends acid? with her, so was it really bad? I don't. Or was it like, it, oh, it was like a big circle on the hood of the car, and I don't know. Like, was she trying to write something? But then she was pretty upfront with the fact of, "Did you like what I did to your car?" And I'm like, "You put a like an O on my car. What does that mean?" It's probably some voodoo thing, and it hasn't come through yet. Yeah, she cursed you, dude. When you get ringworm, you're going to think about her. <laughs> but anyway, Barrel House is a lovely literary magazine. You should all pick up a copy of it at your local uh, independent bookstore where it's surely sold. They have a very active web presence at BarrelHouse.com. And they just started a book press also. Um, so they're putting out books soon. And uh, their editors are lovely. Dave Housley had a great book called Ryan Seacrest is Famous that I really liked a couple years ago. Um, so that's, that's my... Uh, that's my roulette. And I'll put up a link to Barrel House since I'm sure some folks on our Facebook will never have heard of them. Um, so that's my 
That's my classic. Classics all around. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know if Barrel House counts as a classic. Yet, yeah, but, but Dirty yeah. Dancing does. That's a truly subversive movie. The time of my, my life. And, and I whole, owe it all to you. you. One time, um, right after my wife, Wendy, and I graduated college, we went to a wedding that a friend of hers had, and the groom and the bride had a whole dance thing to that song that they did on the dance floor by themselves. That's did he like lift the her in the air? He did the whole kit and caboodle, and I was like, wow. wow. And they were not small people, so that made it even more of a challenge. <laughs> I'll tell you, it wasn't like that scene in Crazy Stupid Love with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. It was, it was not quite the athleticism. I want to see Val Kilmer and Hal Holbrook do that. Oh, that, I think they could absolutely do that. Welcome back to Literary Disco. We're going to uh, talk about two things now. We're going to talk about Norm McLean's novella, A River Runs Through It, which was originally published in 1976 as part of a collection, uh, River Runs Through It and Other Stories. And then we're going to talk about the Robert Redford 1992 film adaptation. I think it was 92. Was it 93? I think it was 92. 92, um, which we've all recently revisited because... I had seen it back then, but I don't didn't really remember anything about it. Um, and uh, I had recently been given A River Runs Through It, the book, by a friend of mine. And he said I had to read it because he found out I had never read it. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly I hadn't read it because I had bad memories of the, of the movie. I remember not liking the movie <laughs> that much. Uh, and so I started reading this, this story, and I just... I love it so much, and I immediately felt like Norman McLean was just a uh, a genius. So I thought we should talk about it on the podcast. So what do you guys think? Yeah. I, well, uh, we should probably all say our status of how we came to it. Like you, I had never seen the movie or read the book. Mm. So I read the book first and then I watched the movie this afternoon. Yeah. How about you, Todd? Um, I originally read this short story or the novella um, oh, yeah, in sorry. college. I think it was probably my junior year of college. Um, so 19... 19- in a writing class or... Yeah, in 1990, yeah. 1991. Um, and then I immediately ran to the theater and saw it, and we'll talk about that experience shortly. Um, but yeah, I, I um, like it was given to me in a class where we were reading Tobias Wolf, Richard Ford, him, oh Carver. God. So it was that, that makes whole, sense. They're in yeah, that era. That yeah. whole sort of lineage of American writers writing about, um, you know, the West or the Middle West, basically, right. um, and nature. Because, th- I mean, this this book really, or this story really is a great harbinger for a lot of those men and geese, men and fish, men and whatever mm-hmm. in Colorado that goes on, or Missouri, mm-hmm. that you really saw throughout the 1980s. So that is part of that class, and I absolutely loved this book. Um, I hadn't read it subsequently in many years, and so going back to it now, um, was great. I mean, it's, I, I think it's, I, I absolutely love this. And I've, I've read the rest of the book that this is in. And there's some great nonfiction work about him fighting fires also. That is pretty amazing stuff. Um, that I haven't read also in years, but when I did read it, I was like, oh my God, this is absolutely amazing stuff. Um, so I, I, I 
have been familiar with this for a very long time and have loved it for a very long time and I was happy to read it and still absolutely love it. Um, and then also happy to watch the movie again and realize exactly why I didn't like the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we can um, get to that. Well, yeah, let's, let's get to that later. Well, guys, I didn't like this book. Just kidding, I fucking loved it. <laughs> my eyes. I didn't like this, it was stupid. It reminded me of what I wrote when I was 12. I think this is one of those books that... Is that, that your impression of me? <laughs> Why does that sound like something you'd say? <laughs> you know, when you read a book like this, I felt within a paragraph, you know, it's one of those books, if you are a writer or if you're a reader who loves good writing, there's absolute... It's, not debatable to me. Yeah. This is a great piece of writing. Mm-hmm. The writing itself is out of this world. Good. It's calm. It's detailed. It's so confident. It's complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a steady hand. Well, we should talk about a little bit what the story is because there actually yeah. isn't that much story. No, it's which pretty is part of the reason why yeah. I think the movie is pretty horrible because it tries to make a yes. story where there isn't one. Uh, so basically, it's uh, he is I guess it's him himself right Norman McLean yes, as Norman a character McLean. so it's very autobiographical but it's it's definitely considered fiction um so he categorized it as such but he must have grown up fly fishing because it's using fly fishing and oh his relationship God. with um with this sport and this activity and his relationship with his brother and his brother-in-law but it's 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 really kind of a fragmentary you know he talks about the, the relationship with his father um, but it's mostly is just about them going fishing and there's drama that seems to be occurring but it's kind of outside of the purview of the story mm-hmm. uh, between you know his his brother-in-law um, you know you just get the feeling you don't really know why but his brother-in-law is just a, a dick he's kind of a fuck up his wife asks him him, him and his brother to take her brother fishing to sort of straighten him out or to help him out and then uh paul you get the sense that paul the brother is in trouble but that never really takes center of stage in the action mostly what the 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 story is concerned with there are these fishing trips about three or four uh specific fishing trips and he's just uh kind of philosophizes while he's fishing or i mean it's it's hard to say like it's it's a story that is built entirely on subtext and the subtext is obvious and he says the subtext is obvious that the words are beneath the water Mm -hmm. basically Uh, and so Mm -hmm. all the relationships that are happening in this story um people don't say what they feel to each other even to to brothers and so everything Mm -hmm. is then the only way that they can deal with their particular conflicts is to deal with them while they are fishing by the way that they each fish. And I think this is its a fascinating thing to me, and I wish I had known it when I was reading it when I was younger, but that the way each person fishes in this is an outlet of their personality. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it you see this a lot, I think, um, in films now, particularly, where the way someone drives or the way someone has sex or the way someone fights um, is emblematic of a larger character uh, issue. But it's done so elegantly here where it could be really on the nose. And then, I mean, there, there are some spots where you can, you could say that Norman McLean is being on the nose, but I, I think it's so poetically wit- written that you, you overlook the, you know, the heavy handedness of the metaphor of fishing and life mm-hmm. because he admits what it is right away, you know? And yeah. so that it's really compelling in that way. There's two things about um, the subject matter of this book that I love a lot. And um, I'm sure we'll get into both of them, but one is um, this book has, that absolute pleasure of reading about something that, you know, 
99% of people know absolutely nothing about and explaining it in such a compelling and elegant way that I, you know, I now feel that I could read about fly fishing forever, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and that it, it, that is built with meaning inherently. And, you know, there's other great books like that, that I love. Like, um, I think we all like, um, Tom Lynch's The Undertaking, which is, um, essays about being an undertaker in a small town. Um, Catherine Dunn's book on boxing, which is the same. Um, we've talked about that before. And it's just got that, you know, sense to it of, oh my God, there's this sport or there's this subculture or there's this hobby that people are doing all around me all the time that is just loaded and loaded and loaded with meaning and detail and, and beauty, um, which is a word that um, he uses himself quite a lot which his Um, father uses a lot too to describe things and that's a great moment where he realizes that his father uses says someone is beautiful at the end of the book he calls his um brother paul the father calls his son paul but the narrator's brother paul beautiful and it's you know men don't typically i think express themselves very well emotionally generally speaking but Mm -hmm. to specifically note the beauty of another man um you know takes a lot of confidence that you can speak like that and you don't give a shit what someone else thinks of the male point of view saying something else is pretty. It's really a powerful moment in the book and throughout the book. Well, I think the masculinity of this book, to get back to our conversation from Ron Curry Jr., is something that I really loved. It felt really sincere. It feels like a very masculine book, not in a defensive way, in a way where you could see how someone would be the most graceful fly fisherman and also a street fighter you know, at the same time that a person, that a man would hold both of those as aspects of his masculinity. I, I, and the relationship between brothers um, felt very real. It's like, well, we we never, What what is it? Um, they use the line in the movie, too. It's like, we never determined who was more tough or mm-hmm. there was one opportunity to determine who was more tough. And, we, and once we touched that, we never revisited right. again. Yeah. And all of those discussions of toughness and masculinity, I don't know, they just rang so true and yeah. yet so sensitive at the same time. Yeah, I feel like a lot of this book is about emotional repression or, you know, or inability to talk about your emotions or your, mm-hmm. and, and how men use an activity like fishing to bond and to help each other. Um, you know, and I love that the, the use of the word help, mm-hmm. like when his brother is in trouble, he has to pick his brother up drunk. He feels like taking him fishing is helping him. Mm-hmm. And he's not even sure what that means, you know, but it's like all he knows to do is to either offer money or take somebody fishing. And I just thought, I love that because it, it spoke volumes about our narrator without us needing to know any of the details about his own life, really. The what is undiscussed, you know, you hear about these problems in people's lives, you get these vague senses, oh, they're seeing a prostitute now, oh, they're drinking too much, they're getting in trouble with the law, but you never get to talk about those details because these male characters never talk to each other on that level. They never open up. Mm -hmm. And there's a respect for that, that our narrator, you know, Norman McLean as a character, is respectful of his characters in a way because his narrator is also unwilling to divulge details. Or To me, it realizes a lot of, like, I'm not a huge Hemingway fan, but I really like Hemingway's early short stories, and I really like a lot of the ideas that Hemingway had about writing. And I, I look at a book like this, and I think it's a a better version of what Hemingway was trying to do. Like, to me, this is 
this is way more interesting and philosophical and does a lot of the things that I think he wanted to do with a sport, you know, like sports writing or an activity and masculinity and I don't know. It's, but it's there's also the fact that there's there you are aware that Norman is writing his novel or writing mm-hmm. this story. And then also Paul's a journalist. So they both are in the word business. But there's a there's a, a small paragraph in the middle of this where um, they're fishing, as happens. And he says... As the heat mirages on the river in front of me danced with and through each other, I could feel patterns from my own life joining with them. It was here, while waiting for my brother, that I started this story. Although, of course, at the time I did not know that stories of life are often more like rivers than books. But I knew a story had begun, perhaps long ago near the sound of water. And I sensed that ahead I would meet something that would never erode, so there would be a sharp turn, deep circles, a deposit. And quietness. So it's that it's that revelation that as that moment is happening, he is also storing it to write about it. That I think is a really unusual narrative trick that's in here. But it also gives you the ability to look at this man as a more sensitive person than he is actually outwardly being towards yes, his brother. Exactly. Which I think yeah. is very interesting. Which is why it fails as a movie, right? I mean, because yes. <laughs> because when you when you why would you ever think that that you could make a movie out of this story? Like that part, I just I, don't understand. Awful. When I started reading it, I was like, I have absolutely no concept of how they're going to make this into a movie. Because one thing that I love about this book also is the, its sense of time mm-hmm. is totally warped. Yep. It's not. It is not told in a linear no. way at. It's referring to different points of their lives all throughout. It's not even, you know, you can't even say it's one of those novels that's bookended. It's not a flashback. It's not anything. It's pieces of their lives constructing an emotional narrative, not a narrative narrative. So when I started the movie, I was shocked, actually. I was shocked by the fact that how he met, you know, his wife was in any way important. Because it isn't. No. You know, it has nothing to <laughs> they, do they with They put a anything. love story into it, basically. Right. But see, here's the thing, though, is that this, plot-wise, this is a story that is constantly about the aftermath of confrontation. Because exactly. each scene is them going fishing to work out the issues that, that have already happened. Well, you can't make a movie about the aftermath of com- of conflict unless it's the day after tomorrow and it's just there's been a nuclear war <laughs> and now you're right. walking through. So they had to change the the they had to make it linear and they had to put in a love story and they had to you know make the paul characters problems that this is no spoiler for those of you who have seen the movie or will read the book and it's not a spoiler really when you read it paul paul ends up dying at the end um but they had to make the reasons for his death the centerpiece of the conflict of the story when it doesn't really matter you know this is a he's a romantic figure he's gonna die so you know, but there's you can't just have a 30 minute movie and say, and he's going to die because he's played by Brad Pitt and he's horribly romantic in this. Right. You just can't do it. Well, I mean, for me, the central. I mean, Ryder already said this, but so I said there were two things that I loved about this, and the second thing is is this question of how do you help someone? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have I have been ha- like having that question in my own life lately. Of you know, I have a friend who had a relative who committed suicide and you know obviously that's a huge part of this and then I have another friend who's very depressed and 
it is a it's a burning heavy question of how, what is help how do we help and that's the tension and that's the arc because you can see you know that that there are millions and millions of reasons why someone like that would die an untimely death and you know there when it when it happened you know it could have been so many different ways that would have been believable in the narrative because the the character was so well drawn um in that way you know you just know that someone is living on the edge like that and and could die mm-hmm. and i i feel like there aren't enough books that truly hit that question in the emotional way that this did i mean <laughs> you know what this book is you know across my mind um this book is the adult bridge to terabithia oh my god yes it really? totally it's the same. <laughs> i've never read oh, bridge to terabithia oh my god it's the i cried in my third grade tone. class when it was read aloud i was a fucking idiot what is it about it's about two children who um a boy and a girl and i think they have conflict as well yes. And they, um, but they have an imaginary world in the woods. That they build um, a bridge from across a, a small yeah. river. And they, they have difficult lives for some reason. I can't remember because the, the Terabithia parts are so, they're so mm-hmm. similar to the fly fishing parts is they go hmm. and they, you know, you know, they're in the woods, they're in the trees. And then, um, as anyone who's read it knows, um, one of them dies and it, it's this feeling of, you know, the end of childhood, but also the end of this romantic place that they have built and that that place can can never be returned to. Mm-hmm. So if you like Bridge to Terabithia and you're an adult who loves to read, you will absolutely love A River Runs Through It. It's very <laughs> similar. Well, and I think there's also the, and this is hard to convey in the movie specifically, is the philosophy and the religion that is mm-hmm. embedded in them in the fishing as well. It is not just a cathartic experience. It is a spiritual experience for them also. And it's part of, their father is a preacher, um, but he's, all, he's as um, interested in God as he is in fishing. And he's also having his own conflicts. You know, he, he now doesn't believe that God created the earth in six days. He'll, he's willing to say uh, half a billion years ago, but not a billion years ago. Um, <laughs> So there's there's all sorts of um, of unsaid things about faith as well. Faith that the fish will be there. Faith that if you do this correctly, you'll have a good response from it. I mean, these guys as fishermen are otherworldly. I mean, <laughs> these guys just they catch giant fish and they do it with a miraculous ease. And I, I'm sure some of you listening are fishermen or fisherwomen or fisher people. Catching fish is it is a it. It's all about patience and being willing to go home with absolutely nothing. But these guys are extraordinarily successful at it. Um, and so there's, there is, there's God in the water as well, which I think, I mean, in the film, the cinematography is beautiful, actually. And I think it was nominated mm-hmm. for an Academy Award for cinematography. And so you get the sense of majesty, but you don't get the, you don't get the words that, that the writer has written in the book to, to really uh, give it more importance than just a, p- a pretty picture. I, I, there was this really cool narrative voice that he has that I noticed, you know, it's, it's this, um, I don't know, is it aphorism is the right word? It's like making these, these bold general statements. Um, but they're very specific. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just found out his brother, he just picked his brother up and his brother's been drinking and owes people money. And so then he goes on on a drive at sunrise by himself and he, and has, 
Sunrise is the time to feel that you will be able to find out how to help somebody close to you who you think needs help, even if he doesn't think so. At sunrise, everything is luminous, but not clear. I underline that yeah. too. That is so brilliant. I mean, yeah. there's, but there's so many passages like that where you're, he's making such a general philosophical statement that is clearly linked to the immediate situation that he's in, and both work. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, the general philosophical statement is awesome and cool, and but then also it tells you the whole story between his He's being both prophetic and philosophical. Exactly. Which is an interesting combination. All right, here's the reason I think that works. I think that those statements work because he's not using there's no feeling that he's like being all writerly and using those he's not using fishing to be philosophical he right. really believes that fishing is a philosophical activity yes. and that's a huge distinction so here's here's what i wanted to read which goes perfectly with what you're saying <clears throat> and with the religious aspects that todd was pointing out the body and spirit suffer no more sudden visitation than that of losing a big fish, since, after all, there must be some slight transition between life and death. But with a big fish, one moment the world is nuclear, and the next it has disappeared. That's all. It has gone. The fish is gone, and you are extinct, except for four and a half ounces of stick to which is tied some line and a semi-transparent thread of cat gut to which is tied a little curved piece of Swedish steel to which is tied a part of a feather from a chicken's neck. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Passage. Man, I love that. That's beautiful. It's, but it's everything. It's the the tiniest detail of a piece of a chicken's, you know, that's... It's it's the whole package. It's oh my god, that's what fly fisherman shit is made out of and oh, <laughs> life, death and god. So how does he how is he able to be filled with mm -hmm. profundity where other people writing about the same thing would sound like they are just spouting, you know, aphorisms mm -hmm. as writer said. I mean, those aren't aphorisms. Like what he's saying is it's like insight into the human spirit right. or well, into he, the way yes. the world works. I felt like it really came full circle near the end when he's having a conversation with his father, who's a preacher, and um, he, he's describing his father. And he said, he tried to tell me. He spoke in the abstract, but he had spent his life fitting abstractions to listeners so that listeners would have no trouble fitting his abstractions to the particulars of their lives. And I thought in a way that relates mm. very well much mm. to the way Norman of Acclaim is writing the story. It's like that, that balance between big abstract ideas that, that he believes in and a very specific story and a very specific family. And I just, I, I, I work so well in the story. Why anyone would think that you could lift some of them out and have a voiceover, Robert Redford reading them as a voiceover mm -hmm. and maintain their profundity is ridiculous. Like there's, they become, at that point, they become cheesy like, except for at the end when at, at the, the end, yeah. at the end of the movie so if you people don't want to watch the movie just get on youtube and watch the last three minutes of a river runs yeah. through it and you'll get the entire book yeah. <laughs> the entire film that last moment in the movie where he's in voiceover and he he reads the last paragraph of the book itself right. um and it's the older version of himself it's norman mclean is out fishing it is extraordinarily moving and he does extraordinarily well because he's robert redford and he sounds great and the words are good. But everything else... I mean, I have a big problem, generally speaking, with voiceover in films. Because typically, I, I think you see it more often in adaptations because they don't necessarily know how to get as close to the work as the work itself. So I, I find the movie of A River Runs Through It really cold and impersonal. I agree. And the voiceover clearly is there to try to mitigate that problem. But 
it just doesn't work. I mean, it's just, it looks beautiful, but it doesn't have that emotion. But then, you know, this week I also saw um, Goodfellas, um, the Martin Scorsese movie, and I just read... It's a great voiceover. It's a great voiceover. Perfect use of voiceover. Yeah. And I just read the book Wise Guy that the, that the movie is based upon, and it's, a, it's an absolute perfect use because that entire film basically is a montage. Um, it doesn't have the, the normal scene structure, and so you need that voiceover to connect it. And the voiceover itself is character. So the character of Henry Hill or his wife in the movie, they come through in the voiceover and our characters themselves, and that changes the whole scope of it. Or even Casino, which is another Martin Scorsese gangster film that I also watched recently, um, both based on books. So, you know, it's, I think that's the real challenge of, a, of deciding you're going to adapt a book like this is how do you get that emotional flavor without taking directly from the book the narrative flourishes of the writer. And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you can adapt this. And for for the opposite, um, this has just been on my mind. So I've been watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix, Mm -hmm. um, which is great and it's funny and it has a huge variety of characters. And that's adapted from a memoir. um, And I looked at it. You know, I was about to buy it and then I was like, no, I think this book is terrible. I just can tell that that the fact that it's told from a memoir point of view means it doesn't have the richness and the insight that the show is able to do. So also knowing when to remove a voiceover aspect, you know, to really consider what the point of view is adding or taking away from the story is... You know, it's so important, and it river runs through. It just felt like shortcut nostalgic cheating. Like I was so (laughs) upset. I was so upset that the movie felt nostalgic because this book does not feel nostalgic. It feels desperate and sad. Mm -hmm. And but so what about what about this comparison? So the book version and the movie version of Shawshank Redemption, which I know you just saw, Julia, has Mm -hmm. Red's voiceover as uh, a thread throughout the entire movie as well. How'd you like the voiceover in that? Um, I like it. I think it's, uh, that's a, that's such a direct adaptation Mm -hmm. that it feels, Stephen King is a a tough example because he writes very cinematically. I was going to say, yeah, his his stuff becomes visual stories too. He's, I mean, you're talking about a guy trying to escape from prison. Right. His background as an artist is he loved movies before he loved books. So that's a different situation. You know, like this book is, you know, you can tell that Stephen King's, got a very cinematic point of view at all times. He can't help it. Whereas this, A River Runs Through It, actually reminded me of um, other unadaptable books like Gilead, mm-hmm. amazing book, similar subject, spiritual subject matter. Yeah. You know, it's not written cinematically at all. No. It's it's deep within the head of the character. Right. Whereas, you know, the Shawshank Redemption, that's it's just, a it feels book. more like yeah. a narrative device, yeah. device of, you know, to maintain this mystery of, what's really going on behind that Rita Hayworth poster. Um, hmm. Okay. Adaptation we should note is that they really, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this a bit, is that they really changed the story quite a bit. So in the book itself, yeah. um, well, they Norman added is, a story. They've made it a yeah, story. Yeah, they, they made a story. Basically, the, they, they created one out of thin air, which doesn't work. It's no. a bad story. Norman in the book has already married... Um, and it, you know, he's come back from being in the Forest Service. It, it, the, the, the book takes part, takes place, I think, at a significant time removed from where the movie does. So this isn't the, the movie starts, he hasn't even been in the Forest Service yet, right? Yeah, the movie does. They're kids. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's like a coming of age story for the first like hour, right? And then it becomes a love story, and and then they've weaved basically the two. There's only like two plot lines in the short short story. There's really the the brother-in-law storyline and then his brother. Right. And they're not much, and what the, all the action of those plots is outside of the story. So you're just like you were saying, Todd. It's all about the aftermath of going fishing after you've had the confrontation or whatever. And that's why I don't understand why they thought they could make this into a movie. I mean, I guess <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like after watching the movie, I, it, it they just obviously Robert Redford wanted to shoot people fly fishing like that that is a beautiful thing to watch like somebody yeah, it, fly fishing the, movie, it, the movie's gorgeous yeah it's visually that is a wonderful thing but but then outside of that like all the other decisions um it just it starts it started to feel like um like a pageant like a norman mm-hmm. rockwell like let's dress up yes. in costume and there was a moment where they had like they do the shot where they're panning left to right a, a, a row of children eating watermelon. Yes. And I was like, oh, this is so... That he literally looked at an Armand Rockwell pick. Because what kids sit in a row and eat a giant piece of watermelon, like, perfect... It was, like, so clearly, like, what does 1926 look like? And then they had, like, this really cheesy Norman Rockwell image of three kids in a row eating out eating watermelon, like a giant smile. And he does that shot. And I was like, that is... It's, like, the most astounding visual cliche to show a picnic. And it was that kind of stuff kept happening throughout the film it was just really clunky filmmaking but how about how adorable young joseph gordon levitt was <laughs> omg i lost my shit right away i was like oh my god that's joseph gordon levitt um, yeah huh. that was a surprise was but but i noticed because um because i was aware of the voiceover and i love joseph gordon levitt that um it was what was really clunky is that there it was basically just voiceover for mm-hmm. that entire part it's just kids looking adorably at for like 30 minutes yeah <laughs> yeah dancing and for the it, hookers they don't it's it's essentially what i felt is they oh oh they didn't figure out how to turn this prose into dialogue <laughs> they couldn't do it they tried and they and they decided it was too hard yeah, exactly. that is actually yeah. what it felt like <laughs> well, and I, the thing that the, 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 they yeah. dramatize their childhood makes absolutely no sense because he doesn't even dramatize it in the book. He, he basically just says, you know, we were rough and tumble kids who learned to love the land or whatever. Um, but it just felt so pointless of like, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is running three feet in front of his brother and the mom's like, wait, wait for your brother. And then the little kid <laughs> runs like six inches forward. And it's like, they weren't even that far apart. You know, like what the hell? What, are what you kind of parenting is that? Let kids be kids. <laughs> scene by scene, I couldn't figure out what the, was going on. Like, I'm literally looking at... They keep having these brother scenes, you know, mm-hmm. when they're kids, and then as they're adults. And I am i don't know what the relationship is supposed to be. Like, I really don't. I'm like, does did Brad Pitt make any decisions? Did anybody decide what they're talking about? Because they have, like, these looks, and they'll be like, we'll go fishing tomorrow. I'll be like, yeah, fishing. <laughs> and you're like, so? <laughs> It was kind of incredible how it took the venom out of things that felt high stakes mm-hmm. in the story, yep. like um, the r- racial tensions mm-hmm. with the Native American. It just felt like, a, oh, look at this scene. Um, or I thought I, it's funny because I feel like a lot of the tension that I got out of the novella was um, this tension of trying to please his wife and his mother-in-law, basically trying to do right by them. Like there's real love there. And so that every time, you know, 
his brother-in-law, you know, sunburns his ass, um, that there's real stakes <laughs> right. in that. Like, it doesn't right. seem like a yonk, yonk, yonk. Because there's a part uh, in the scene. book where he even says, my brother must think that this is going to end my marriage because they bring back the, the brother-in-law all burnt. And it's like the, an entire house of women is yelling at him. And he has that moment where he suddenly is no longer the the person that protects. He's the person that needs protection from the situation. It's a very, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a paragraph in the book, but it's a really important development in Norman's character because he begins to understand what being a part of two families is about and yeah. about mm-hmm. the value mm-hmm. of love between siblings and the value of love between you and the person you're married to. Yeah. All of which is completely lost because... They aren't married in the movie. It's a love story in the movie. And they can't believe they actually lifted the dialogue because the, the, the moment of, that you're talking about is like some of the greatest dialogue in the story where she says, you're funny. Yes. Do you don't like my brother? And he says, I don't. I do not like I your do brother. I do not like your brother. Yes. And it's, but he, and then he follows it up with another, it's a beautiful little passage, but it's, it, yeah. it says everything about this relationship because really he doesn't talk much about his wife, but you know that they have this deep and abiding love that, that, ha, you know, has this conflict in it, but they're going to figure it out and, and, and they're going to make it through. Mm-hmm. And then he has like this devastating line mm-hmm. where he said, like, I yeah. told her I would love her forever and I do, oh, her death got in the way of that or something. Yeah, it's that's... so effective. And then they take that dialogue that precedes that amazing line and plug it into like this romantic comedy moment. Of the movie. And, the, and then Brad and Pitt like, jumps in. And then Brad Pitt oh, jumps in for God. no reason. And it's like a sunset. We tried to make it pretty to make yes, sense they, of why this is a movie. Him. Oh, it's a oh. horrible scene. It's just bad. It's just bad, bad, bad directing. You know what, guys? If you make me watch one more fucking movie that begins with an old man's hand <laughs> saying, like, I had to write this, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm going to quit this podcast. It's my pet peeve. I can't take it anymore. I don't want to watch any more movies about someone writing the movie that they're about to be in. I don't want to watch that. Can we make a law? Can I lobby Congress? I hate it. Tell me your backstory, wise author. Because I think I, I think this is what I said before, but... I am a writer. I love being a writer. But people other than writers can have ideas and tell stories. Yes, that's true. That is what annoys me about it. You don't get credit because you're a writer. It's not like, ugh, it's so frustrating. Well, here's an, here's a, here's an mental exercise, though. So I just read Wild. I just finished Wild by Cheryl Strayed, which mm-hmm. we talked about before. And apparently, you know, that's going to be adapted by Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon, yeah. Whatever is going to play it. How do you translate that? Because that is... To me, you would have the fact that she's a writer is so essential to that story, and yet it, it, obviously it has this big externalized mission. You know, she's hiking, but I, I don't know how you're going to convert that into a movie. Like that would be really difficult. And I, I imagine if I Nick was, Hornby's writing the script, better be good. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, how are you gonna you're gonna have voiceover in that case? Or mm. yes, I, I think it'll have to have voiceover. But there's huge drama in that book. You know, the hike. Um, all the stuff with her background growing up poor and the horse, things I don't want to ruin, things that I love. You know, the fact that someone wrote it eventually, I think, I mean. But see, to me, everything this is a pet- everything that you just described about that, the, like those backstories become lifetime movies in my mind. Like if I actually, like the story, what actually happens is very, I mean, that's her whole thing is like she's making a ritual out of nothing. You know, mm-hmm. she's creating a ritual and what saves what otherwise would be a very cheesy story to me is her writing. Like it's the prose and her character as a person. And that doesn't come like, that's going to be so hard to get across on in a movie without 
becoming cheesy and and well i think it's hard but that's the challenge and that's why so many movies are bad and i I, i'm not saying (laughs) that you know things shouldn't be well written i'm saying that it should not begin with her writing in her journal you know what i mean the fact that she's a writer doesn't automatically make the writing good you know let me ask you guys a question that's it's sort of related to cheryl Strait's book um there was an essay in the la review of books uh two days ago that about nature writing and it basically said and i disagree mm-hmm. with this um even though i have not read the book i, or I disagree with on its premise <laughs> that <laughs> that wild had ruined nature writing and that what? nature writing had to get back to you know the writing of John Muir and stuff. It, I'll, I'll, I'll put the link up on our, our Facebook as well. But I was I had just read that, and then I reread this book right after that. And I was thinking about this book in terms of nature writing itself, mm-hmm. and how you know it is it is really a story of man versus nature, and it's man versus the actual nature, the river and the fish, and then there's man versus his own nature in this, in, in Paul's rough and tumble um, life. And so I'm curious, you know, where does a book like this maybe fit in with a book like Wild, where it is about people finding themselves or finding truth in and around this, you know, this world that is bigger than they are, of nature? Well, I think a big difference is that there's a sense, um, well, I I don't want to comment too much on an an article about Cheryl Strait that I haven't read, but (laughs) it seems to me like what people... I mean, she she enters nature in a very conscious way. It's very it's a different approach. Like they're entering nature in this story to pursue an activity, a fishing, mm-hmm. you know, a fishing trip. And then the fact that it has these healing powers in his life is is something that he is, has discovered by accident, you know, or that that has arisen yeah. out of a tr- tradition or a, a habit that he and his brother had. This hobby, mm-hmm. uh, whereas. In Cheryl Strayed's book, she's actively entering a ritual of a hike right. to get over yeah. some things in her life. You know, most recently a divorce for her, but also her mother's death, which had happened years before, and her drug addiction and all sorts of things leading up to a, a hike. So she's creating a ritual in nature as opposed to these guys finding a ritual out of a tradition that already existed. That's one big difference. That, That's a great point. Yeah. Great point. I think that... Um, I don't know. It sounds like that article is making nature too precious. Um, and I mean, I love being outdoors and, and doing things in nature. I consider myself a nature lover. And my sister works for Greenpeace. It's part of my life. Those terrorists? But, <laughs> um, I think that we have to acknowledge that nature isn't necessarily a nature preserve, that Every time a human interacts with an environment, indoors, outdoors, whatever, that's a part of the human experience. So, you know, fly fishing is a sport. Mm -hmm. Fish get killed. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it's not a pure description of how fish, you know, move through the water. And it's therefore absolutely valid to write about whatever your interaction with nature is. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the best nature writing doesn't occur in nature writing. Right. You know what I mean? I made little quotes with my fingers, listeners. So how I've been thinking about this recently, so it's summertime and I live on the East Coast. So um, I went to the beach by myself um, a couple weeks ago, and I spent the whole day lying on the sand and getting in the water, lying on the sand, getting in the water. Perfect. And that is a nature activity. That is American, that is, 
probably the most common American experience of nature is swimming, right. but we don't think of it that way. And if you, you know, to get really environmental, you know, if you want to save the oceans, you have to remind people that so many of the things that we love doing are interactions with nature that are very delicate and that could go away. So, you know, wild is a great example of that. This book is a great example of that. But, you know, every time you enjoy a forest or whatever, Bridge to Terabithia, <laughs> every time your childhood best friend dies in a forest, you are experiencing nature. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, not all nature writing can be, you know, a pure description there can be narrative within nature. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. That makes good sense. All right. I accept your answers. Please uh, close your blue books and submit them now. I I litter, though, because it's good for the economy. It creates jobs. Someone's going to go pick that stuff up. Great. <laughs> that was actually my wife's grandfather's Boo. theory. <laughs> Are you Did serious? he really say that? Yeah. Creates jobs. Wow. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when guest author Jim Gavis has us read The Woman Chaser by Charles Williford. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literarydisco. Follow us on Twitter, at literarydisco. And check out our Goodreads page where the discussion about Finnegan's Wake is ongoing. Thanks for listening. So-